Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I'm very excited today to have as my guest Professor Nadia Ahmed of Barry uh, University Law School. Nadia is a graduate of uh, University of California at Berkeley, got her JD at Florida, an LLM from the University of Denver, a prolific writer, the author of over 40 articles, numerous book chapters, and she's an expert on environmental law, energy law, corporate social responsibility, climate change, and the kinds of things I know nothing about. So I'm really excited about today. Nadia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to just disclaim at the beginning, so I've done about 55 of these or so, and 95% of the time I have con law professors on, and I know what I'm talking about. Uh, today, I don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to ask a lot of open-ended questions, and I'm really here today, and I hope the audience appreciates this, to learn from you on a lot of these complicated and difficult issues uh, involving climate change, energy, and other related subjects. So let's start with the Held versus Montana case, which is not in the Supreme Court, which is unusual for us. I usually talk about Supreme Court cases. But this is an incredibly important case. Tell us what it's about, why you care about it, and why we should care about it. Sure. So um, this lawsuit that is uh, brought, it's a constitutional climate lawsuit that is a youth-led uh, movement, is held versus the state of Montana. It uh, it, it is uh it is involves uh, youth plaintiffs, um, and they're involved in this uh, case in the terms of Montana's legal actions uh, since um, um, since a number of years. And so, the actual lawsuit itself was filed in March of last year, into 2020. And you have about 16 different uh, young people from all across Mont Montana who are filing this lawsuit against the state of Montana, and they're asserting a number of things. And the first one is that this is a fossil fuel. Uh, driven energy system, which is contributing to the climate crisis. And they're arguing that Montana is violating uh, their constitutional rights to a clean and healthy environment in terms of being able to also seek uh, safety, health, and happiness, as well as to individual dignity and equal protection of the law. They are also arguing that the state's fossil fuel industry is degrading and depleting Mon Montana's constitutionally protected public trust doctrine. Uh, the plaintiffs themselves are represented by um, by our Children's Trust, Western Environmental Law Center, and the McGarvey uh, 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 Law Center. Um, I did want to also add in a, a personal anecdote. I first uh, became involved uh, with our Children's uh, Trust at when I was a when I was a fledgling uh, master's student at the University of Denver uh, almost uh, 11, 12 years ago. And this was when uh, they started the hatch cases for uh, for climate uh, lawsuits that, that are driven by youth uh, plaintiffs. One of the cases you're probably more uh, familiar with involves the, the Juliana uh, lawsuit. And so this lawsuit that is happening in Montana is following from that same uh, vein of lawsuits. Let's back up a couple of minutes here because you did mention the phrase constitutional right. So all of a sudden my head perked up even more than usual. Wait, on the state constitution, the federal constitution or both? So they're looking at it from the, the state uh, constitution of Montana. Okay. Uh, and each of these uh, lawsuits that are being brought forward, they have a different angle. Um, and so some of the, the lawsuits are being brought forward at the federal level, and there are others are being brought forward at the state level. Um, and this is a part of the litigation strategy that is being deployed. And this litigation strategy is not unique to these uh, climate uh, cases. This the same type of strategy has been deployed by civil rights uh, activists, uh, for example, 
relating to segregation, uh, desegregation cases, as well as looking at cases that involve um, uh, right to housing as well. So, so there's a number of civil rights cases that uh, employ this. Really, it's a matter of forum shopping, and they're also looking to see uh, which states may be uh, uh, more uh, salient or, or more um, uh, more receptive to these types of arguments. Uh, what what is most surprising about this case uh, involving Held versus the state of Montana is that it's actually set to go to trial in February of 2023. And so right now the the plaintiffs and their attorneys are working to gather evidence and get ready uh, for trial. And I think that's what's really caught caught the attention of a lot of. Uh, uh, of scholars uh, uh, for constitutional law because uh, because this idea of the public trust doctrine has been used in a number of different uh, contexts. It was first or more can, recently can you define the public oh, sorry can you can you define the public trust doctrine for those of us who are not experts in this? Yes, yeah, so the public trust doctrine was uh, most recently popularized by uh, Professor Joseph Sachs back in 1970. He wrote an article in the Michigan Law Review that talked about how natural resources such as lakes, rivers, shorelines, and oceans were actually part of the public trust and had to be protected from private, uh, from private and government interest. And so he based the reasoning for the public trust doctrine off of uh, Justinian or Roman law, um, as well as English common law, and as well as an 1892 uh, case that looked at uh, the shoreline of Mich Lake Michigan that was owned by uh, the, the railroad. And so the, the public trust doctrine has been used in a variety of different uh, contexts. Um, it was probably most famously used to protect uh, Mono Lake, which was just uh, east of Sierra uh, Nevada um, from, from, from the city of Los Angeles, which was diverting water oh, from the streams yeah. that fed the yeah. lake. Yeah. And so I think you, people may have come across the public trust doctrine, but they just have to kind of recollect where they've seen it in other contexts. So, so, so that's interesting. Let's back up one more step. The Montana state constitution, does it provide the kind of rights you mentioned are the kind of rights that are not in the federal constitution in any way, shape, or form? Um, are these rights explicitly mentioned in the Montana constitution? Yes, and so even for example in Montana, but even in Florida, there are there is right to uh, there are environmental rights embedded within state constitutions, and so the litigation strategy is looking at the state specific uh, issues here. And I just wanted to also kind of back up a little bit uh, in terms of how um, environmental uh, lit litigation has worked or where it's been successful is figuring out, uh, for example, the the body of law, administrative law relating to environmental law may not be as robust. It may not have the particular parameters for uh, compliance and enforcement that the constitutional law may provide. In fact, one of the most successful um, lawsuits against the Keystone XL pipeline was based off of that was brought forward by ranchers and farmers in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And they had argued for under the, the uh, under the state constitution that uh, not even an environmental issue, they were arguing that procedurally the 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 permit wasn't pro uh, um, uh, processed correctly. Right. And so this is a, a same type of uh, um, a strategy in terms of figuring out which issue will, will stick. So if you had to explain the core of the plaintiff's lawsuit, which is going to trial, as you mentioned, in a year or so, um, to someone like me, who is quite the amateur on these issues. 
what is the what is the in non-legal terms what what is the crux of their claim so essentially they're arguing and this is uh the same broader argument that was brought forward under the juliana case is that there's constitutional rights to life liberty and property and so the public trust resources are being violated when you have fossil fuel industries as well as the government failing to protect the public, that by having constant extractivism uh, in the term in terms of, uh, of fossil fuel extraction, hydraulic factoring, uh, and, and just intensive carbon uh, hydrocarbon use, that is causing uh, pollution degradation impacting life, liberty, and property. And so that's really the claim that is uh, being, being brought forward and asserted. It's funny, as a layperson here, when I think of climate change and, and pollution and lake, you know, dirty lakes and all that. Um, I think of Montana with complete ignorance as a place that is likely less affected by those things than, you know, New York City or Newark or Los Angeles or something like that. I take it that's a naive and, 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 and wrong view. Yeah, and I think it's also important to think about who is being impacted. So, for example, there are tribal communities within sure. uh, Montana who are also being adversely impacted in ways that, uh, for, for example, um, non-tribal uh, folks would not be. And so I think that is also part uh, of the argument that you, that you will see uh, coming coming forward. And I think there's also this another idea behind these lawsuits is the idea of intergenerational equity uh, in, in the sense that those who are who are responsible for the degradation of the environment will not be around to face its its impact. And so it's really holding uh, holding accountability from the state government to enforce proper uh, environmental protection laws. So um, with the little knowledge that I have on this, I'm on all fours with trying to fight climate change with every tool imaginable and so on and so forth. I do have kind of a 30,000 feet in the air question, though, about this. Uh, and you know, I think from, um, I think you know a little bit about my work that I'm extraordinarily skeptical of judicial power at the federal level, certainly, and that I don't want judges doing a lot of things. I think unelected life tenure judges shouldn't be doing a lot of things. That's my bias. Uh, the Montana Supreme Court, I'm sure, is not. I'm pretty sure they don't have life tenure. Um, but leaving that aside, I am wondering the balance between trying to stop our planet from dying, um, which I think is how I would put it, um, and maintaining economic productivity in a way that is important and, and, you know, and keeps progressing is a really tough thing. Why are we in courts instead of trying to convince legislators to change these things at the state level? Yeah, and so that's really a great question Thank because you. since the 60s and 70s, there haven't been any environmental protection laws at the federal level. Um, since you had this flurry of laws that came out looking at um, the National Environmental uh, mm -hmm. uh, Policy Act, you had the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, all of these major pieces of federalization legislation that were strong and robust are not have not had any changes to them aside from in the 1990s where there was uh, some amendments that were passed and so this is an alternative strategy what the lawsuits are also doing is they're raising awareness uh, for the issues and so it's keeping the issue in the news as well as keeping it at the top of mind uh, what really needs to be done is to have uh, federal legislation as well as state legislation for environmental protection uh, what 
many youth climate activists are arguing arguing for is this uh, position of to keep it in the ground. And so unless that happens, we're going to face devastating uh, impacts of climate change. There has been increasing momentum building around these cases. Uh, since when I first started working on it, uh, the Hatch case is back in uh, 2011, uh, up until now, they haven't gone away. And in fact, I think this is the next frontier of major litigation, uh, atmospheric trust litigation. Right. And, and the reason I say that is because these cases are similar to tobacco lawsuits. Right. When tobacco lawsuits were brought forward, everyone thought the that they were crazy, wild, insane, but over time they were able to become successful. And so not only are you going to see these, these types of cases, not just here, uh, but also lawsuits that are brought forward uh, against corporations. There's also a number of lawsuits that are being filed by state attorney generals. And these types of uh, cases are going to lead to multi-billion dollar uh, um, uh, judgments uh, because of what is happening. And I think that it, I think right now there's a lot of skepticism surrounding it, but I see that there may be a shift uh, around that. And the reason for that is because that the the impacts of climate change, as well as the intensity of of environmental pollution and toxicity will reach a point that it will be unbearable. And so that's why I think that there's going to be a shift. The same way that tobacco companies were held accountable, I see the same happening with oil and gas companies, when, as well as the states in terms of their failure to act. When you say unbearable, um, that's the word, I think that's the word you used, um, are you suggesting hurricanes and fires and, and weather conditions and other types of natural disasters caused by climate change will make all of this unbearable? Is that what you're referring to there? Yes, so that, that's what I'm referring to. So, for example, out in California, uh, as well as uh, parts of the Pacific Midwest, there's been increasing uh, wildfires. Right. Uh, out in the south, we're seeing increasing hurricanes. Um, there was also a study that was done by researchers at Yale showing that not only will hurricanes become more intense and more frequent, they're also going to be going all over the place. So just this past fall, there was a hurricane that uh, went up to Connecticut, uh, which hasn't seen a hurricane in a long time. Uh, we saw Superstorm Sandy. And the when you have these types of catastrophic weather events happening, you may have one or two. But when you start having 20 or 30 of them happening, uh, that is not going to sit well with a lot, a, a lot of people. And there also will, will be this less of a resistance to to what is happening and how we really are not ready for what is happening in terms of this upcoming climate crisis by by mid century, by the 2050s. Millions of people will be dying from climate uh, um, climate related events as well as natural disasters. Um, well, like hold on, tens wait, of millions pa pa of I'm sorry, Nadia. Pause. Right, you said that very <laughs> casually. I, I hold on one second. You said by 2050 or so, of course, um, there will be millions of people who are affected, or you said killed by um, uh, climate change issues. That's a scary thing. Yes. You, you said that very casually. That's a really, I mean, I, as I, we both have kids, you know. Um, I have mm -hmm. three kids, you have three kids. Uh, that's a very scary thing. Is that really, you're very confident that's going to be here by 2050? 
that's not my prediction. That's what the atmospheric uh, dynamicists are predicting. Right. Uh, in fact, that they're also predicting that as a response uh, to these uh, adverse climate impacts, there's going to be more public outcry as well as protest associated with it. Sure. Uh, in, in that, um, that those who are at the frontline communities are going to be most impacted by it. Uh, and for me, this is what I do all the time. So that's why I can say it very, very casually. Sure. Because as, as many times as, as, I, as, I, as I say it, uh, I, I met with a lot of resistance as well as skepticism. Uh, no, not but for I me, by the, the way. Numbers... Because I was not being yeah, skeptical. No, no, no. But, I was just yeah. sad. You made me sad, no. not skeptical. <laughs> Yeah, and if you if you if you speak to uh, Julia Olson, who is the the lead um, uh, 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 plaintiff's attorney from our Children's Trust, uh, she she will cry about it. For me, I have like the opposite impact. It creates a bit of anger in me, sure, uh, as well as um, like like I think my my response is is, is different because I feel um, I, I feel very. Um, I would think I would describe it as ve being uh, very cornered by it, that, sure. that I feel that if that I have to like, it's kind of like you're being bullied by the issue right. uh, when you're talking about it and people don't take it uh, as seriously. And when all the money that is being spent on all these other different things, you know, giving mi uh, millions, billions of dollars to corporations as tax credits, uh, you know, billions of dollars that is being spent on war. And then there's only a trickle uh, in terms of what is being spent and what is needed for climate change for example um in in the in the u.s it will cost uh, so much money to have clean energy uh, available um, and we're just not at the the numbers that what would be needed to have that massive energy uh, transmission i'm going to um i'm not sure where this thought leads i haven't thought through it um maybe you can correct me or agree with me i don't know i have this sense that it is part of the human condition not just in America, I think universally, that it's very hard for us to imagine disaster before disaster hits. Um, and it's, it's just not the human way. Um, even people who are, even people who have been put through horrific personal trauma and Holocaust or, you know, whatever it is, purges in other countries, until it happens, there's this feeling maybe it won't. Do you think that's a part of this? Yeah, I think there is there is denial about like yeah. there's, the climate denial is definitely um, uh, par part of it, but I, I think that there there's just so much uh, uh, corporate interest as well as as well that is backing um, uh, uh, backing um, anti environmentalism. And what you also think I think is very interesting as well um, is that you have uh, countries in the Middle East like the UAE that are actually also funding uh, environmentalism in the United States because they want to preserve um, the hydrocarbon resources that they have uh, developed and have them kept for export to the United States. Uh, and, and so we're just not really looking at this the same way that other countries are. And actually, when I fly into D.C., that's a really sad moment for me always, because it's really the only country, really only uh, country capital in the world where climate change is still being debated. <laughs> uh, and so I think that if we really I think that really is uh, th that's really what I think is most frustrating to me. I get that. Um, how old are the plaintiffs in the held case? Um, I don't know their precise ages, but they're all all youth youth plaintiffs. That's so interesting. Well, I um, one, one more question about Held, then we'll move on to a different case. 
So I have studied social movements. I don't know anything about the environment, but I have studied social movements, uh, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, uh, the LGBTQ movement, and I'm fairly familiar with how social movements work. Um, I've read a lot of Jack Balkan, who's very good on this, and, and other things. I feel like these movements generally have some centralization to them. And the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, and, and to some degree, lesser degree, Malcolm X, um, but certainly Thurgood Marshall in the 30s and 40s and 50s made a lot of important decisions about how to get to Brown. Brown didn't just come up one day. It was a long, constructed litigation strategy that the NAACP, I know you know this, the NAACP put together, knowing it was a long game. It was a long game to be played. They couldn't they could have brought Brown in 1935, they would have lost, almost certainly, right? Um, is there an organizing force here like that that can make this social movement successful? Yeah, and I think it's not just one group. I think it's a convergence of, of mm -hmm. movements that are happening. I see, I see movements that are growing uh, for, uh, for, for, um, for abolition of prisons. Mm -hmm. um, there's also movements that are growing for, for women's rights. Um, and then there's also a youth mobilization as well as a climate mobilization. And I see all three of the, all four of these different types of mobilizations working together okay. along with uh, movements for immigrant rights. And I think that that type of convergence, we have really seen more of that happening uh, in recent years. Um, in 2014, um, I was in New York when uh, when the climate protests were held in September, mm -hmm. and there was about 400,000 people in the streets for that protest. Uh, and, and, and that uh, really led to a wave, and it led to uh, what ended up invariably being the uh, Paris Climate uh, Agreement uh, in 2015. Like, there was public outcry. So there's a saying that change... Um, doesn't come from Washington, D.C., change comes to Washington, D.C. <laughs> and so I think that that people will I, I think that I, I, re I really am a firm believer and I'm sure um, you, you know, you've noticed this as well in the research that you've done on social movements is that it, there, it becomes like there's a breaking point that yes, happens. Definitely. Uh, we're also starting to see this um, uh, relating to voting rights. Uh, and and so it just it just the bottom won't hold anymore, and that's really what we're seeing with climate change. Um, in the next ten fifteen years, it will only get worse. It's not going to to get better and go right. away. And yet, having said all of that, it's a nice segue to West Virginia versus EPA, a case I actually know a little bit about, and sometimes a little bit of knowledge is probably worse than no knowledge at all. Um, but um, there are strong forces out there trying to prevent at least the federal government, from making an effective response to climate change. I think West Virginia versus EPA is a quintessential example of the counter forces that are occurring right now. So why don't we talk about, can you give us, and now this is a complicated case. Uh, there are non lawyer I want to remind you, there are non-lawyers listening, I think. I know there are. So um, as, trans you know, as, as um, not transparent, that's the wrong word, as, um, I don't want to reduce it, but on the other hand, it has to be accessible. So in an accessible way, can you describe what this case is about? And do you agree with me this is like a major challenge to all the efforts that, that you and other great people are putting into to doing something about climate change? So I, I guess the way you would describe this uh, case in a nutshell is that you have a band of state attorney generals who are challenging the authority of the EPA to set broad uh, emission standards. 
um, that would kind of be outside the fence of power plants. And so this case has developed a lot of interest uh, from a lot of people, uh, including those who are watching the Supreme Court, as well as those looking at constitutional uh, and administrative law. And so there is uh, there is also this idea that because the Supreme Court right now is dominated by uh, by uh, by six Republican presidential appointees, uh, three of them by President Trump, uh, the court may drastically limit the regulators authority to, to take action. Um, Robert Leiden, who is at the Brookings Institute, our institution has actually questioned, you know, what would be the impact and how far the courts may actually go in this decision, and that he doesn't think that they're actually going to come at it with a hatchet or a chainsaw, um, the, the way that some people have been speculating. Uh, he, so I think you would see it more as a um, ending with a whimper uh, than a bang. Uh, and so I think that it's he, he thinks it's not going to be gutted. And I'm actually of the same opinion as well. It's going to uh, limit some of the authority, may erode uh, some of it, but I think that it's not going to go as far as uh, as as many um, ha have been arguing. Uh, and what I've also seen is it, there's been uh, strong uh, conservative uh, headwinds on on this uh, lawsuit, uh, testing to see how it's going to impact other other litigation uh, as as that is that is coming up the pipeline. Uh, it may possibly end up in the in the Supreme Court. So that's where I think that's where I think people are watching it very closely. It's not just from an environmental environmental law administrative law perspective, but seeing okay how far is the court going to go after this as well. So a couple of questions to maybe drill down a little deeper on this. First of all, based on my limited knowledge, isn't this case moot? Why is the court hearing this case at all? There is no active rule being litigated in this case, right? Yeah, and so that was really, I think, what surprised some people also is that, you know, there's really nothing left to, to, to discuss as much uh, in this case. And so if the regulation itself what was being uh, uh, considered, they're also thinking that it may be some type of backdoor way to try to strike down um, delegation powers uh, yes. of Congress. Um, and so I think that that I think that's what that's why some people are, are nervous. Hold on. What yeah. legal rule is at issue in this case? So it's primarily looking at like the the statutory lane in terms of um, so it falls in this idea of what is um, like the major questions doctrine. Yeah. Um, and also looking to see kind of how different um, concerns are going to be uh, looked at specifically re relating to um, uh, other precedents that have been uh, set forward, for example, um, in Whitman versus American Trucking Association, uh, in terms of how laws are going to be executed. Um, and there's also some concern about the non-delegation uh, doctrine uh, that has been uh, brought forward. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean any of that. What I meant is, is there an actual live EPA rule that's affecting the states that is, that is still alive today that is at issue in this case? I, I thought the rule that they're challenging doesn't exist. The actual substance. Yeah, so it's really, yeah, so it's really, uh, it's like a hypothetical. <laughs> we um, don't do hypotheticals in the Supreme Court. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, it, it, they're trying to, to look to see how specifically, for example, um, the, the, the concern looks at, for example, if you have... Um, the the clean power plan if, if that's brought up yeah. like wh what is what is it what's going to happen with that and what I think is all, what I find uh, the 
really painful irony as well is how when um, the Biden administration, the EPA right now are doing their rulemaking, they're doing it so as not to get have have it litigated. Uh, and so I think that they're being somewhat reticent about it. And that's also I think that's I think that's what's more troubling about this case is that they're 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 afraid to have uh, any, anything that they put forward brought forward uh, to 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 uh, to be litigated. Right. But I also think there are some people out there who think because there is no active rule to be litigated, as you said, it's a hypothetical case, why the court should just dismiss it. I mean, it should be moot. That, I guess I, I, I haven't heard the argument yet why we're litigating over a rule that doesn't exist. Because my understanding is Trump rescinded some rule and then the Biden administration is thinking about putting it back but hasn't. I, I don't know why this case is even a case. Yeah, and I think I think that I think that's that's problematic. But I think that the that there there is not a clear issue in terms of what this case is about, uh, precisely. So I think that that's what is I think disconcerting for for folks. So that's why I think the case won't have as much impact as many think it may have. Okay, so th- so this is this is where I think I do have some some context on, in this discussion because I don't know much about what we're talking about, but I but I do know about the Supreme Court. And let me expl- express my concern to you, and you can tell me I'm crazy. I hope, I hope, you, I hope at the end of this you say, Eric, you're crazy. Um, so the only reason – this is – bear with me for a minute. I apologize for taking up some time. The only reason that same-sex marriage is legal today in the United States is because – in most states – is because Justice Anthony Kennedy had a thing for gay rights starting in the mid-'80s. And the only reason he had a thing for th- – gay rights in the mid-1980s is because someone very close to him was gay growing up and he saw that person live in the closet and it was it was terrible. And Justice Kennedy talked about the awfulness of Bowers before he got to the Supreme Court. Anyway, we have gay rights because of Anthony Kennedy. All of those cases were five to four. Without him, we don't have gay rights. Justice Roberts had it in for the Voting Rights Act as early as 1981. <laughs> and he wrote a memo you know, despising the, the Voting Rights Act as a lawyer in the Justice Department. Of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did amazing things for gender discrimination, Thurgood Marshall for racial discrimination. My fear here, and I know it's going to sound alarmist, but I don't think it is. When Supreme Court justices have things like that, it's their passion. It's their life. You know, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it was – and good for them. Not good for Roberts, but good for the other ones. I think Justice Gorsuch has it in for the EPA. And I think it's a combination of many different things. His mother was the head of the EPA in the early 1980s and was forced to leave in disgrace. Um, And I think he has a thing for administrative law. He's been pretty open about that, actually. Um, So I think he is driving a lot of this. And and I'm sure people listening to this would think I'm crazy. I think his Bostock opinion was partly – so he could get off the bat really early with a liberal decision so that when he does terrible, heinous things to the EPA, people will go, yeah, the conservatives will go, yeah, but he decided Bostock. I'm really worried about him on this. I think this is his, this is his gay rights, his voting rights, his you know, gender rights. Do you think I'm crazy? You, you don't think he has other issues like that? Do you, do you think like – He does, Native Americans, Native American rights, he does. And look what he did. Right? He he was he look what he did. He he issued the most important Native American rights case in like forever. So and he won. And he won it. And I'm worried he's gonna win this battle too. Well, I think you, you told me not 
to say this. You told me to say that you're crazy, but you may actually be, <laughs> you may be right. Um, uh, and, and so, but I, I don't, I don't think he's going to use this case to do that. Okay. Um, like, I, I don't think it, this is going to be, this is like, it's not the hatchet is going to come down on this case. Okay. Um, because, because he has time for whatever else he wants to do. He has time to make the, those changes, Okay. um, in Fair. terms of like where he wants, where he wants that to happen. And, and I think even from a strategy perspective, if I was him, I wouldn't do everything like that right away. Like I would do it over time gradually. Um, Um, because he has the, the numbers on his side and presumably Right. for a long time, I had, I, I had a colleague, uh, tell me once that, uh, it's not possible in her lifetime, uh, that there will be, uh, um, you know, like a Supreme court that would actually issue a, a proper opinion after this. But, but I mean like that, I mean that, but that when we're looking at, um, like intergenerational equity, um, like, w like we don't always have that, um, that luxury Right. to think that, okay, this is going to happen in my lifetime. So for me, like, I think, okay, maybe not in my lifetime, it'll happen in my kid's lifetime. And so anything worth fighting for is going to take more than one lifetime uh, uh, to do it. And I think that, I think that's why, e even if the, even if the Supreme court goes a certain way, there's other branches of government as well. Okay. And, and I don't, I don't think the Supreme court is the best avenue to, um, To, to, to really issue because what, what the Supreme Court does at a very granular level won't impact everyday people. And, and that's where I think the, 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 the more potential for, uh, for uh, changes to the law as well as policy would have to come from the executive branch as well as the legislative branch. So, so you, you use the word gradually, and I, and I think that's really interesting, and I do want to tie it in, um, and I'm sorry, you're the victim of this, to broader themes that this podcast has gone over for the last two years since I started it, which is um, Thurgood Marshall understood what you just said. I mean, Thurgood Marshall got to Brown gradually. Ruth Bader Ginsburg got to gender rights through her litigation strategy gradually. Everyone knows John Roberts is the master of the long game. He did the Austin case, the voting rights case, before Shelby County because he wanted to play the long game. And finally, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I would defer to on all issues involving gender rights, um, said that Roe was too much too soon, quote, in one fell swoop. It was too much. I trust her on that. Um, the way to do social movements is gradually, and the way to make changes is gradually. I think you're right about that. I don't know if Gorsuch buys into that. Uh, I know Roberts does, for example. I know Thurgood Marshall did. I know Ginsburg did. I don't know if, if Gorsuch does. Uh, he may be impatient. He may be a petulant child in some ways. Um, it wouldn't because his mother was quite petulant. So I don't. I don't know, but I, I certainly hope you're right. Um, let me ask you a personal question, if I may. How did you get into um, what? What drove your passion for this? A lot of, you have a lot of passion for this subject. Where, where does it come from? So for me, I grew up in Florida, and so I, I, you know, grew up around the coast. I also uh, have uh, seen a number of hurricanes uh, since I was very young. In fact, my father and I—that's like one of our pastimes, aside from watching basketball together—is uh, tracking hurricanes. Um, and so I've also seen a lot of environmental calamities. Um, my family is from India and Pakistan. They've been impacted by uh, Of course. monsoons. Uh, that part of the region. And so 
I think that people don't care about the weather and the impacts that the natural environment can have. And um, and I think that unless we're protecting um, our communities, and also I think another thing that really drives me is the responsiveness to disaster. So disaster preparedness, uh, but also how to reduce disaster risk. Um, I, in 2017, when Hurricane Irma came through Florida, uh, I was I was teaching environmental law, um, and then you also had Hurricane uh, Maria out in Puerto Rico, and I had students for uh, for about ten days didn't even know if they had family members in Puerto Rico who were alive or dead, um, and so I think having proper infrastructure and communications is is really uh, important, and I think that there's communities that are neglected um, as a part of this, and this this bad weather essentially. Is, is an equalizer that we really have to uh, also work to fight uh, the, the problems that happen um, associated with natural disasters, but also be mindful of the impacts that are happening uh, to environmental justice uh, communities as well. One of the things, this, this is going to sound stupid, I'm sure, but one of the things I've noticed among my, I'm 63 years old, I'm old, um, among my friends is that when they are choosing retirement places, and I have a lot of you know big corporate lawyer friends who made a lot of money and are retiring early on, um, they're, even conservative ones are starting to talk the talk of the desert may be better than the coast <laughs> because the coast in 20, 30, 40 years may really be a place nobody wants to live. And that's been a change. That's like the last five years. Um, that gives me some... I, I, I mean, those are all selfish kind of desires, but I think that's happening. Uh, do you think that's real? Yeah, and, and I think like if you look at high net worth individuals, they see the impact that climate change has on their boating, mm -hmm. uh, as well as when they go to ski chalets. So they see as well like the ski season is shorter, yeah, or they're, they're not able to go boating as much because there's a hurricane. So I think that they are, are seeing the impacts and they're also seeing like coastal erosion uh, as well. Um, but But the thing is that rich people are able to buy time uh, in, in ways that poor and impoverished communities are, 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 are not. Uh, but I think that because they're able to see these changes happening now, they're, they're, they're going to, it's going to just be a, um, a, a pause in terms of how they are, they are thinking about it. But I'm really optimistic that I think the, um, in the sense that there will see, people will start seeing very soon uh, how much of a danger this is. And, and I think that it, it will likely unite people um, in ways that they couldn't have before. Um, for, for example, like the ocean is rising and it's not Democratic or Republican. It's just, <laughs> just ocean. And so, so I think that we, like, we, we have to, to be able to address these issues together. I hope so. I hope so, because it's scary. One of, the, one of the tropes that I hear, and that frankly, 20 years ago, I maybe even 10 years ago, uh, I would have kind of accepted myself. I, I've evolved since then. Um, and I'm actually going to, rec when this is over, I'm going to recommend you talk to somebody whose radio show I was on for a very long time. And I used to say this on his show a like, long time ago. Now I'm embarrassed that I said it, but I want your response to it. No matter what America does, if India, China, and Russia don't come along, is there any hope? 
I think I think America is is really in a position to lead in ways that it hasn't before, and uh, even right now there is a movement building for a UN resolution for the right to a healthy environment, and and that movement is is uh, essentially you have the U.S., Russia, India, uh, who who are either uh, abstaining from it or or opposed to to this UN resolution for the right to a healthy environment, mm -hmm. uh, and so. countries who are are who have already uh low um uh, already uh low sea level countries and are more susceptible to sea level rise i think that those countries themselves are also rising up and demanding action um in ways that they ha i think they they have also saw Uh, in the last COP, you saw Prime Minister uh, Mia uh, Motley also speaking up. So you have uh, leaders emerging uh, from from countries, for example, within the Caribbean that are going to be very adversely impacted. Like they don't have years; they may have just weeks or months if a bad storm comes along. Um, and so there are communities that are also thinking about relocation uh, and evacuation. Um, And re resettlement, and so this is this is also the framework that we will also have to be thinking about. Maybe not as soon as these other countries, but I think that 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 I think that the U.S. has led in other uh, arenas as well as other issues, and and, and I would think that the the U.S. would, would also uh, do so. Um, and and the reason why I I think I am also optimistic is because if the, if the U.S. is able to uh, to, to to build momentum around. Uh, in convergence for an international cooperation on on climate change and and, and climate change regimes, it, it is going to have uh, more impact. I hope you're right about that. Um, I, you know, I I I fear if Republicans get back the levers levers of the federal government, it will take a major catastrophe to move forward on this. Um, but I, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope I hope you're right. All right. Um, I have a couple of uh, that was all very serious stuff, and I learned a lot. And thank you very much. And um, I, I'm actually I'm glad you're optimistic because you're an expert. And if you're optimistic, I can be optimistic because there's not a lot of optimism out there on this issue for those of us who are lay people. Um, I want to end with a couple of kind of lighter questions. Um, you're you're in Florida. Florida's been in the news a lot the last couple of days. We're taping this on um, Thursday. It'll probably come out next Monday or Tuesday. So who knows how much the news is going to change between now and next Monday or Tuesday. But over the last couple of days, two things have happened in Florida garnering national attention. One which affects not you because you're not at a state school, but certainly affects education in Florida, is Governor DeSantis, I guess, has signed a bill that allows tenured law professors to effectively be reviewed and fired by administrators at the state level, not just their presidents or their, you know, other problems, but, but politicians basically at the state level. How concerned are you about that, if, if at all? I think it's really alarming. For example, I wrote a, a case book on environmental justice. I likely couldn't teach it at the University of, of, of Florida right. in the way that, that, I, that I really wanted to. Right. Um, even if I, for example, this semester I taught um, uh, a property class, uh, Uh, looking at property from a more emancipatory sure. approach, I likely could not teach that class as well at the University of of, of Florida, and, and and I think it is uh, concerning. Um, and I don't know if you know, I actually do did a lot of work relating to uh, voter mobilization mm -hmm. back in twenty twenty. Yes. 
And so I, I felt that for me, this wasn't a time to just, okay, write this next law review article, right. but really to take time away from what maybe I should be doing uh, <laughs> to focus on the the democracy itself and to take ownership of it. And so for me, it bothers me that, okay, maybe I can teach it, but what about my colleagues at the state schools? Um, that this is something that we have to fight for. And like we can definitely like comment about it, but I think that having ha, ha, i think everybody has to take it upon themselves whether it's registering people uh to vote or to have uh, phone banks i think all of that those like very um like less um glamorous parts of being uh, a citizen i think are are important and i think that we i i think that that is really a, a, a very very uh very very uh, important thing that we need to do. And I, th I think it's really funny as well, because um, anytime I talk to anybody from out of state, there's about a five minute conversation about Florida. Uh, <laughs> like, 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 uh, like, you know, what's happening? Are you okay? Type, yes. type, type thing. <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, so it's, it's, it's like, like, it's just gotten like to the point that I'm like used to it now. Uh, but, but every time it gets like worse, like, like how much worse can it be? Uh, and so, and so I, I think it, it, it feels just, like it's it pretty bad. My weird. sister lives in, in West Palm Beach and, um, she's yeah. pretty hysterical about all of this. The second thing that happened is, <laughs> I don't understand this at all. Apparently DeSantis is at war with Disney and, and, and what's going to happen, I'm, I, I know less about taxes than I even know about the environment, but I think what's going to happen is a lot of Floridians taxes are going to go up because of various legal things he's taking away from Disney. Can you explain that to me or what's going on with that? Yeah, and so I guess to to kind of explain it is that for, for many in Central Florida, it may increase their taxes mm -hmm. uh, by around uh, $2,200 to $2,400 uh, per, per family or per person. Um, I don't know the precise math on that because of the, the bonds that have been uh, issued. Uh, and also I think what's interesting is that there was millions of dollars of corporate giveaways uh, that DeSantis had had done. And so uh, so the Republican Party in Florida is really held up uh, only by a few select corporations that have been uh, funding them very well. Uh, in fact, it's embarrassing that our the grocery store that is very common throughout Florida, which you also have up in uh, Georgia Publix, yeah. uh, essentially funded the, the insurrection um, on, on January 6th uh, in 2021. And so uh, I think they gave about $300,000. One of the heirs uh, to Publix had given about $300,000 uh, to it. Um, and so a lot of the politicians are impacted by special interests, special corporate uh, interest. And so it's not really the rule of the people. It's the, the rule of the most uh, rich, wealthy and elite uh, companies uh, in terms of what is happening. And so now you're having some type of like tit for tat slash tussle, uh, tussle uh, th that, that, that is happening uh, because there may be some resistance from Disney to give uh, corporate donations to the Republican Party there, uh, as well as to Republican state candidates. Uh, and so so uh, so uh, Governor DeSantis sees this as uh, maybe not writing on the wall, but maybe a chance to also build up his base uh, as well that is increasingly racist, homophobic, uh, xenophobic, uh, you know, anti-Muslim, anti-Semitic. Yeah. And so I think that this time, this is, I think people are, are really uh, 
uh, astounded by what is happening. And, and, and if you look back, the 2018 election wasn't like a big landslide for DeSantis. He only won by around 30,000 right. uh, votes. And so it's going to be tight again now. Um, and, and I think that, um, and so I think I think especially you see that what, on the news about the redistricting, uh, the, it's not as if he won the election. They they have uh, they have really ger they're trying to re gerrymander the state. Uh, they are not uh, they are disenfranchising uh, people who should be voting. They're dropping people from voter rolls uh, left and right, and it's it, it's it's really unbelievable the the lengths that they will go to to protect their power. So as a lifelong Democrat, I just want to say, and I know this is easier than it sounds. I know it's more complicated than this. If the Democrats, I know you've worked for the Democratic Party, or I think you've worked for the Democratic Party in Florida. If the Democrats in Florida cannot combine the raising of taxes on themselves, on people of Florida, and the hatred of Disney into a successful political strategy, then we're done in Florida. Because I can't imagine, why wouldn't that be an incredibly successful campaign? He's attacking Mickey Mouse and he's raising your taxes at the same time. How can that not be an effective thing to run against? Exactly. And I, I think that people care more about Mickey Mouse than they do Ron DeSantis. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. So it's just it's, it's just like the wrong it's like the wrong mouse to go up against. I hope you're right. Um, I hope I'm right. Yeah. All right. Um, I have one last question that may lead to nowhere or we may end up talking 10 more minutes. I don't know. It's a light question to finish this podcast with. You've been great. Thank you. Um, you mentioned off the cuff, you and your dad bonded by tracking hurricanes and by watching basketball. I am a uh, lifelong impassioned NBA fan. Were you referring to college basketball, pro basketball, or both? Uh, both. And in fact, my initials are NBA. <laughs> okay. So, um, this podcast may not come to air unless you answer the following question correctly. I'm kidding about that. But are the Boston Celtics the source of most of the evil in this world? <laughs> Before I answer that question, yeah. I did want to add, though, that when I was at the University of Florida it won, or in, in Gainesville, it won both the championship uh, for NCAA uh, men's basketball as well as uh, football. Okay. Uh, so it was known as as, as title town. Um, <laughs> and I was also in uh, New England when the um, when the Patriots won. Uh -oh. And we have uh -oh. uh, we have like back to back Stanley Cups uh, in in, uh -oh. in uh, Florida as well. We may be in deep. We may be in trouble here. Are the Celtics the source of all evil? Let's say in the basketball world, we'll limit it to that. No. Ah! Who's your team? Um, I don't watch basketball as much anymore. Okay. Um, okay. But or, the Orlando Magic is not my team. When I was when I followed it more, I was really into the Utah Jazz. Okay, uh, I'm okay with that. Had, uh, I'm good Carl, with that. Carl, with Carl Malone and John Stockton, sure. I really, I sure. really thought it was like a great team. Okay, I'm okay with that. I've been I've been fighting on Twitter with numerous law professors. I'm sorry, on Facebook with numerous law professors like Ilya Soman, who's a friend, you know, and other people about how evil the Boston Celtics are. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I have learned 
more in this hour than I've learned probably in the 53 podcasts before this, which is not a reflection on those people. It's a reflection on my ignorance of these lawsuits, these really important lawsuits. I want to mention them again for people listening. There's the Held versus uh, Montana lawsuit that is, if I get it wrong, tell me, that is being brought by uh, basically young people. To, to, to make all kinds of arguments about the, the damaging effects of climate change on an, in an intergenerational type of way, which is obviously true. And then West Virginia versus EPA, which the court is hearing this term, which could potentially do a lot of damage to EPA's ability to do its job, but hopefully won't. Did I get that right? Is that fair? Yes, that's all correct. Okay. Thank you so much for being on, Nadia. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Okay. Thank you so much.